This is Geraldine Hasselpool, FMH blogger and all-around Mormon feminist superstar. If you have enjoyed the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast as much or more than you have enjoyed a Mormon casserole or a salad recipe from the children's friend, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the podcast. Your donation supports the amplification of women's voices, past, present, and future. Please give and give generously, and then deduct it from your taxes like a true American, and then eat some funeral potatoes. Hey, you've earned it. Welcome back Feminist. to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Housewives. Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we try to unpick, untangle, and understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage and see how it affects our lives today. And I'm really, really excited to have a guest on the show today because this is someone who has influenced me personally. I don't know if anyone has followed the Day in Mormon History blog. Someone who is managing that blog is here with us today. Claire Barris, can you say hello? Hi. So let me just tell you a little bit about Claire. He has presented papers and participated at Sunstone and the Mormon History Association and Mormon Media Studies Symposium. And um, I believe you've done papers on divining rods and Mormon history, Oliver Cowdery's exposure to Freemasonry, Wilford Woodruff's Lawless Women Revelation, which I hope you'll come back and talk about later, and the history of Mormonism and the internet, and an analysis of sexual chiastic structures of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, you're also a senior systems engineer at a large corporation in Provo, and you have two daughters and only one wife. Only one wife, and she only has one husband, too, so we're... We're going strictly traditional here. Strictly traditional Mormon marriage. I don't know if we can argue that that's traditional Mormon marriage, but there it is. Uh, and, yeah, and you currently blog at withoutend.org, and you manage the Today in Mormon History blog, which I love. And I will link to that so people can check that out. But I've, I, I'm glad to hear you reading. That's, that's great. Yeah, no, no, I found so many amazing things there. That I, that never occurred to me before. Basically, what it is is you go through the calendar year and show what happened on this day in Mormon history. Correct? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, like it's. Uh, I look at every year divisible by five. So five years ago, ten years ago, and I weed out uh, the boring stuff like uh, Wilford Woodruff milked his cows this morning, and and I try to pick just the interesting stuff, and uh, and. I have no idea every day what I'm going to run across, but uh, it's it's really it is interesting. There's so much interesting stuff in Mormon history, and so it's really fun to do that. It is, and it really keeps it alive when you sort things that way. And like I said, I've read it sometimes and and thought, wow, I never even knew that that happened. So I'll link to that, and I would encourage everyone to check that out. And do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself? I know I kind of talked about you a, a little bit, but tell us how you got interested in this subject. Uh, yeah, years ago, I, I read a number of books on Mormon polygamy, and I became fascinated in the topic. Uh, and uh, I read Richard Van Wagner's book and Todd Compton's and uh, Carmen Hardy's. And, and then when the essays came out, uh, I 
I've been very busy and I, I kept telling myself, don't dive into these uh, essays and try to deconstruct them. I was really tempted to. I was able to resist that for three or four days and then I finally <laughs> I couldn't resist. And so I started to deconstruct the first one and, and I got just a few paragraphs in and, and then I ended up writing this uh, piece on, on, uh, on these revelations, uh, the early revelations about polygamy. And so that's kind of how I got started on this. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode today is the polygamy revelations. And like I said, we're sort of going to jump back in the past again because uh, I wanted to base this around Claire's availability. But it is relevant with the church essays coming out right now. And I have since since the essays have come out, I've had a lot of people ask me about the origins of these essays surrounding DNC 132. That's a big question I get. So we're going to talk about that today. Claire has uh, written a it's a blog post about it, and I'm going to link to that. But we're going to talk about the polygamy revelations, I guess, that Joseph Smith had, correct? Yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, they, they, they talk about an early 1831 revelation, uh, and I think that I think it's more complicated than that. So I, I think if we look at the 1831 revelation, that is referenced in the uh, the polygamy essay on Kirtland uh, and Nauvoo, the origins of polygamy. Uh, and we, if we kind of look at that, uh, and then we can move on to some other revelations that Joseph Smith had about polygamy. And, and I, I think the reality is that the 1831 polygamy revelation probably maybe wasn't the source of what he recalled for the uh, Section 132. But it was uh, actually later revelations that he had. And I've identified about 10, and I think there were more than that, uh, revelations Joseph Smith had before uh, Section 132. And uh, Joseph Smith uh, said that he knew the revelation by heart when Hiram uh, and William Clayton and Joseph were together. And Emma had been having some difficulties and... Uh, and Hiram said, you know, Joseph, if you could dictate a revelation for Emma, that might really help. And I might be able to convince her that this is all cool. And uh, Joseph says, I don't need to uh, produce a new revelation. I can just recall it because I've already had the revel- revelation and I will just reproduce that from my recollection. And so that's kind of where Section 132 uh, originates from a recollection of an earlier revelation that Joseph Smith had. This revelation that he's recalling is of some debate to scholars, correct? The date is important because, of course, we have Fanny Alger in the mid-1830s, and people like to argue if it was an affair or if Joseph had received the revelation and had married her as a plural wife, correct? Yes, there is absolutely debate about that, and there's no... There is an 1831 revelation about marriage to Lamanites. Uh, it's unclear, though, if it is about polygamy. But there is other uh, impetus for revelation uh, that that occurred somewhere in that early time frame that, that we can uh, dive into and take a look at. Well, let's do that. Let's talk about first the 1831 revelation. So one thing that's going on and one thing that's suggested by the uh, authors of the uh, polygamy uh, essay is that um, the translation may have come while 
Joseph Smith was translating the Bible. And uh, in 1831, between the dates of February 9th and April 4th, Joseph was translating uh, the text of Genesis that include the stories of uh, Abraham and and some of the other uh, uh, and his uh, wives. And then later, through September 12th, he is translating a text that covers other polygamous relationships that occur in Genesis. So this time frame, he is reading this material. Now, as I've looked over that, I haven't seen anything that shows Joseph doing some major tweaking of of the text in Genesis that emphasizes polygamy. I, I was kind of hoping to see that, but I don't see any evidence of that. Uh, the only thing that... Uh, that is of an interest is uh, Susan Staker wrote a very interesting article uh, about Joseph later in 1840s changing some Genesis text where that has to do with lying about his plural marriage relationships uh, to Pharaoh and and Joseph actually changes the wording uh, to suggest that Abraham, that it was okay for Abraham to lie to Pharaoh about uh, plural marriage. And, and Susan suggests that that this was something that Joseph was doing with Emma at the time, uh, perhaps lying. And, and she's the only scholar I'm aware of that has tied uh, the Bible translation to polygamy in a clear uh, in a clear method. Now, some other things that are going on at that time in March, he has a revelation about the Shakers. And the Shakers, they encourage celibacy. Anne Lee, uh, who founded Shakerism, uh, she had the most terrible, painful pregnancies uh, that absolutely were e- extremely painful. She couldn't walk. She had to crawl when she was pregnant. And every time her husband would get a kind of that twinkle in his eye, uh, she would and want to have relations with her, she would freak out, and she hated the idea of having uh, uh, intimacy with her husband. And and lo and behold, she she ends up founding a religion based on not having uh, sex with your spouse. And so Joseph and some of the early Mormons are having encounters with Shakers, and so he has a revelation in DNC 49, and it says, uh, this is in verses 15 and 16, Whoso forbiddeth to marry is not ordained of God. And then it goes on to say, Wherefore, it is lawful that man should have one wife. So so here in 1831, we have a clear revelation dictating that, uh, that there should only be one wife. Uh, and this is in response, as I said, to uh, the, the Shakers. And I love that because we we haven't talked a lot about the Shakers in the context there. Again, I've, I've mentioned this before that, you know, the ground was fertile, if you will, for these new religions. And the Quakers was one of them and all of these other, and the Shakers was one of them. And the Mormon religion was another where they're experimenting with relationships and family and marriage and sexual relationships. So that was, that was uh, interesting that they would all influence one another and sort of respond and react to one another. Yeah, and what's uh, also interesting, well, that whole area was was rife with uh, 
experimentation on communalism and marriage. Uh, and this is, you know, this is upstate New York, which is kind of the nexus of this, uh, second great awakening where there's all this religious experimentation and this new republic, which had granted religious freedom, uh, it kind of spawned this, uh, cauldron of, of ideas that were generating. And so you have a lot of interesting, uh, experimentation on marriage. A great book to read on that is uh, Lawrence Foster. Uh, he wrote a book on um, Shakers, Mormons, and uh, the Oneidaites, and and it's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating book to read. One of the groups that that the that the Mormons encountered this is in 1832, a year after this revelation, were the Cochranites, and the Cochranites are considered to be kind of the ones who created the idea of spiritual wifery, as it's called. And uh, he uh, would have revelations about people swapping wives, switching wives. And he, as the founder, would dictate who was, basically who was going to be uh, married to who, and it, and it could change according to his thing. And so this may have been an influence to Joseph Smith at the time, or at least got him thinking about uh, about this concept. Well, and we know that Joseph would actually use the term spiritual wifery in his denials. So we know that he was aware of the practice, and he was saying, they are accusing us of spiritual wifery, but that is not what we're doing. And I agree with you. I think that it was definitely an influence, because I, I think that there's a lot of parallels there that can't be denied. Yes, uh, I, I I think there is, and and other people like Brigham Young, for example, he he called Mormon polygamy. He referred to it as spiritual wifery, and he would reminisce about when he was first introduced to the concept of spiritual wifery. So Joseph distanced himself from that concept, but uh, but not all early Mormon participants uh, distanced themselves from the concept of spiritual wifery or that term. I imagine it would have been really confusing to sort of untangle the nuances between that spiritual wifery, polygamy, plural marriage, and all these other sort of coded words that they use. We did an episode on the Lamanite marriages early on, but I'm hoping, can you give us sort of a refresher course in this 1831 Lamanite marriage revelation? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, on, on July 17th, uh, 1831, Joseph Smith and several other elders had crossed from Jackson County uh, over into Indian Territory, and they were beginning the the Lamanite mission, and uh, and they decided it was very important to determine who was to be the first one to preach a sermon, and so they prayed about it, and Joseph had what was called a lengthy revelation about it. Now we have several accounts of this. Revelation, and uh, let me go through those. And, and it's kind of interesting how this may evolve over time. Uh, but uh, the first one, uh, first account, is by Ezra Booth, who writes about it four months after the revelation. So this is the earliest accounting of this revelation, and it, and it says, uh, "Quote: uh, It has been made known by revelation that it will be pleasing to the Lord." they should form a matrimonial alliance with the natives. And by this means, the elders who comply with this thing, so pleasing to the Lord, 
and for which the Lord has promised to bless those who continue to do it abundantly, and they gain, that they may gain a residence in Indian territory. So, so we have this interesting concept of a matrimonial alliance that these elders are to engage in with, with the Indians. No mention of polygamy. And interestingly, the elders that were involved uh, in this, Scott Kenny has done some research and found that these elders who were going to continue on this uh, uh, Lamanite mission were all either married or one was about to be married. And 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 then uh, I'll talk a little bit about Martin Harris's marital status, which may play into this also. There's a, the next accounting of this revelation occurs in 1845 in a council meeting, and this the notes for this council meeting I have to say are very interesting for reasons other than polygamy. It, it's <laughs> Somebody could write a, an article on, on this uh, council meeting, but among other things, uh, Brigham Young says that they have now entered into the millennium, that the millennium has started. That's, that's one of the things that are in the notes of this meeting. But, but for our purposes, we'll, uh, W.W. Phelps, who was part of the Lamanite uh, mission, he gives the following, this accounting. He says, uh, quote, Phelps said, Six or eight went over the boundaries of the U.S. to preach. Joseph went to prayer. He then commenced a revelation that Martin uh, Martin Harris was to marry among the Lamanites and that I was to preach that day, etc., etc. It was a long revelation. So we have a very interesting reference here to this revelation where it is only Martin Harris that is to marry among the Lamanites. Again, no reference to polygamy. And at that point, Martin Harris's marital status was that he had separated uh, the previous year in 1830 from Lucy Harris that we know about from the last 116 pages. They had separated. She apparently wasn't very happy about uh, mortgaging the farm to pay for the uh, Book of Mormon. And then she dies. And so at this point, Martin is single. And so here's a suggestion that Martin was to marry among the Lamanites. Now, later that year, Martin would remarry, not a Lamanite uh, or an, an American Indian. So so that's, uh, that's that uh, particular. So intriguing. would this suggest that this supposed Lamanite polygamy 1831 revelation was not intended to be a polygamous sort of revelation? Or do you think that there's ample evidence for both for it to either be well, polygamy or not. Yeah, so so we have two these first two references really don't speak much about polygamy. The only the only possibility is in the first accounting where these elders are to take Lamanite wives and they're already married. And so it's possible that there's an inference for polygamy in the first account. The second account uh, is only Martin Harris that is to be married. To a Lamanite. Now, the third account, this occurs much later and in 1861. And so this is 30 years after the fact. It is very, and it could be that W.W. Phelps has, is misremembering and including some of his uh, background of being heavily involved in plural marriage, or it could be that he's remembering it correctly. But the fact that it's 30 years later, 
we should be a little more skeptical about this last accounting. Uh, let me let me read that. Scholars will say that you know the we can't trust the Temple Law affidavits because they were done so many years later, and yet I sometimes see them refer to this W.W. Phelps revelation as if it were credible, and I would just like to see more sort of you know equity being spread across the board in how we view revelations or remembrances that are done years and years later. Yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, I believe that uh, uh, we really need more historical evidence to confirm that this was about uh, plural marriage. And, you know, at the time in 1861, the Civil War is uh, is underway. The saints are seeing this as a vindication of United States killing Joseph and Hiram, and they they see that this is divine retribution, and they're also seeing it in the context of polygamy. That polygamy, which they've been persecuted for, is now being vindicated, and and so W. W. Phelps is writing from this context, and so he he produces a, a seven paragraph recollection of what this uh, revelation was, and he uses exact quoting, even though it's from memory. And let me read part of the fourth paragraph, which is the one that uh, is of interest. It says, For it is my will that in time ye should take unto you wives of the Lamanites and Nephites, that their posterity may become white, delightsome, and just. For even now their females are more virtuous than the Gentiles. So that's a very interesting paragraph. And this definitely says it was plural marriage, uh, polygamy, and that by intermarrying, and, and even more interesting, that by intermarrying with uh, the Lamanite women, that the pos- their posterity would become white and delightsome, which is, uh, which is a reference to... St- Second Nephi, uh, chapter five, verse twenty-one, where uh, which which was recently taken out of the uh, headings uh, of the scriptures, and the church is trying to distance itself from this idea of this racial component that uh, somehow dark skin is tied to God's curse, and uh, but this seems to to confirm that if Phelps' recollection is correct, and it certainly was Phelps' understanding at that time. Phelps wouldn't be the only one. I mean, we see this up until the 1960s, right? This was an idea that really permeated the Mormon church after this. So I think think it's really hard for the church to divorce themselves from that sort of thinking as well, because it's sort of interwoven. I, I mean... We talked about Jacob Hamlin. He was married to a Paiute woman, I believe. He had a Paiute wife. And so this, the remnants of this would sort of hang on to Mormonism for a long time. Absolutely, absolutely. And, it, you know, we would like to distance ourselves from it, but it's kind of hard to do because it's it's ingrained in Scripture and in our history and uh, and in this particular instance. And so it's, it's an uncomfortable uh, part of our past. And and kind of a difficult thing to 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 root out of the out of our discourse and and our thinking. Let's shift gears for a minute. And can you tell us about Sarah Pratt? Uh, I talked about this a little bit in the episode with Christy Money, and when we talked about abuse, tell us about who she was. Yeah, Sarah Pratt was married to Orson Pratt, and uh, Orson uh, was an apostle. Orson had been called on a mission 
uh, overseas. And uh, during that time, um, she was approached uh, by Joseph Smith, according to John Bennett. And let me make a little note about John Bennett. Several of these items that I'll be talking about uh, are kind of John C. Bennett uh, was helping to get items published, or these are his accounts. And some people, uh, rightfully so, don't trust uh, John Bennett uh, completely. John Bennett was very close to Joseph Smith, and they were, uh, he was the assistant president, uh, effectively part of the first presidency at the time. He was the mayor of Nauvoo, and he was setting up the Nauvoo University, and, and on and on and on. He was right in the middle of it all, and Joseph's number one person for a period of time. But, but they uh, ended up becoming disaffected, and, and John Bennett chose to embellish some of his accounts of what was going on. And this is unfortunate because now we don't know what John Bennett to trust and what to, and what to take as, as, uh, truthful. And so, so Sarah Pratt, so here we have John Bennett giving an account of what's going on and, and we should, we should approach this with caution. John Bennett says he warned Sarah that Joseph Smith, quote, would approach her in the name of the Lord by revelation. And then he goes on to say that Joseph said, Sister Pratt, the Lord has given you to me as one of my spiritual wives. I have the blessings of Jacob granted me as he granted holy men of old. And I have long looked upon you with favor and hope that you will not deny me. So I just uh-huh. want to say one word about that really quick. So we, you know, uh, John C. Bennett is, of course, used to discredit Joseph or to discredit sort of these these more salacious practices of Mormon polygamy in Nauvoo. But Sarah Pratt would talk about this later on. It wasn't just John C. Bennett's account of this. Sarah Pratt would, of course, come to Utah, and she would also become disaffected and become one of the biggest opponents of polygamy in Utah. Yes, exactly. In fact, uh, one of the things Sarah says uh, much later is that, quote, God does not care if we have a good time uh, if only other people do not know about it. And she was quite bitter, and that's how she uh, remembered it. And and then Bennett, much later, uh, said that he, quote, called upon her that a revelation was to be made five days later to Joseph Smith authorizing polygamy. And, and so here's this reference again to uh, to to a revelation. I think even though even though Bennett's accounting may be untrustworthy, uh, I think that the idea that there was a revelation for Sarah to uh, get married, I, I think that's uh, pretty likely. So can you play out the story for us a little bit? So very briefly, Orson is on a mission, and we have Joseph Smith and John C. Bennett giving conflicting stories about what is going on. And, uh, Sarah Pratt and Bennett, or Sarah Pratt and Bennett claim that Joseph Smith approached her to have a relationship. And Joseph Smith, uh, produces a number of, uh, counter affidavits to, uh, show that it was actually Bennett that was having a relationship with Sarah. And Orson, uh, he comes home from his mission and it takes a while, I think, for him to figure this out, but, he finds out 
that something is going on and he is absolutely devastated and he disappears uh from Nauvoo and they have to search for him and and uh and some felt maybe he uh, was suicidal over this dilemma where he felt he had to choose between what Joseph Smith was saying and what his wife was saying and eventually uh, if, if I remember the story, and I'm not an expert on this story, but, uh, uh, he, uh, ends up being, uh, kicked out of the church for a brief amount of time and his wife, but then they both come back into the church and, uh, and follow Joseph Smith and pretty much denounce what Bennett says. Now, years later in Utah, Sarah Pratt, she divorces Orson. And, and she claims that she did have a relationship with Joseph Smith. So, so it's kind of a, it's kind of hard to tell. And there's different scholars give different accounts about what actually happened. Uh, it's not clear from the historical record. Why is this included in the revelations? What would you say about this revelation? Do you think it's something that people can take seriously? Or, just like you said, be cautious of how seriously is it taken in the context of all of this? Yeah, I include this because it, it is a, a revelation, uh, and I, and it seems to fit in with other revelations that occurred where Joseph Smith, before he approaches a woman, he has a revelation, and it appears that he did approach Sarah Pratt, according to, to Sarah, and in fact, there's a there's a much later reference where uh, somebody uh, says that Joseph had a revelation to marry all of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve, uh, their wives. We don't know if that was actually true, but we do know that he he proposed to a number of the wives of the Quorum of the Twelve, uh, possibly Brigham Young's wife, uh, possibly John Taylor's wife, certainly uh, or likely Orson Pratt's wife. Orson's Hyde wife, who we, we talk about later, Heber C. Kimball's wife. And uh, it seems that, at least for a period of time, Joseph may have been approaching all of these women. And it may have been a revelatory thing, and it may have been to set up kind of a dynastic web of relationship. Uh, it, it's hard to tell, and there's a lot of debate about what that might mean. And to the extent that Joseph, uh, all of these aren't solidly documented, but there's some reference to these. Okay, so let's talk about another sort of controversial situation. I've, I've mentioned this story on the podcast before, but the Brigham Young's proposal to Martha Brotherton, who would have been his first attempt at sort of living plural marriage. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, this was on April 1st, uh, 1842. Brigham Young had apparently been introduced to the uh, concept of plural marriage by Joseph Smith, and he had not plurally married yet or married uh, anyone uh, in a polygamous relationship, and this appears to be his first attempt. Now, what what is kind of nice about this is that uh, Martha Brotherton writes down what occurred like a day or two after the events occurred. So we have very, a very uh, uh, up-to-date reference about the conversations that occurred. Now, some uh, some people question 
the reliability of her testimony, and they say that it was influenced by uh, Bennett. And that's, so, so again, there's some question about this. But, but we have some uh, narrative um, here. I, do you want to read that? According to her account, Martha Brotherton reported her discussion with Heber C. Kimball, Brigham Young, and Joseph Smith about plural marriage and the associated revelation. About April 1st, 1842, Heber C. Kimball told her, quote, Well, said he, there are many things revealed in these last days that would that the world would laugh and scoff at, but unto us is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, end quote. A little later, Brigham Young proposed to her, saying, quote, Brother Joseph has had a revelation from God that it is lawful and right for a man to have two wives. For as it was in the days of Abraham, so shall it be in these last days. If you will accept of me, I will take you straight to the celestial kingdom, and if you will have me in this world, I will have you in that which is to come, end quote. So let me let me interject there. We we have some concepts that um, are common among some of these other revelations and in uh, section one thirty two. This idea of uh, of course uh, multiple wives, but a restoration of polygamy from the days of Abraham being restored in the last days. That is a, a concept uh, that's also in section one thirty two. The idea of uh, you know Brigham says I will take you straight to the celestial kingdom. And that's kind of a that idea of uh, achieving the highest degree of the celestial kingdom through polygamous and or celestial marriage is uh, a concept uh, in 132. And and then he talks about, I, I will have, if you will have me in this world, I will have you in that which is to come. Now that could be a reference to concept of marriage in time and in eternity. Uh, now marriage is... Uh, in time, we're in this world only, and in, in eternity, we're in the next world only. And some marriages would be one or the other or both. And here, apparently, uh, Brigham is suggesting that if if this is the way it, it could be interpreted, that it is a time and eternity type ceiling that would occur. Uh, and, and this whole story is fascinating, right? She's in this room, and... There's this back and forth with these leaders, and uh, I would encourage everyone to look up the story and read her account of this. But she says that a little bit later, um, ten minutes later, actually, after Brigham has given his sort of proposal, Joseph comes into the room and he tells her, quote, Yes, said Joseph, and I know that this is lawful and right before God, and if there is any sin in it, I will answer for it before God. And I have the keys of the kingdom, and whatever I bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever I loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And if you will accept of Brigham, you shall be blessed. It would be the greatest blessing that has ever bestowed upon you. End quote. So we have some concepts that are similar here to section 132. There's the idea in section 132 that about sin and uh, that it, even if somebody sins, it could be you pay the price and you were still going to be exalted. That concept is taught in 132. This could, may or may not be related to that. Uh, there's also uh, the idea of having the keys of the kingdom. Uh, Joseph having the keys of the kingdom were mentioned here. That's also in section 132. And then the idea of binding on earth and binding in heaven, loosing on earth and loosing in heaven. Those are all part of section 132. And then the last concept in this section, uh, the, that this is the greatest blessing that was ever bestowed upon you. Uh, that concept was uh, 
commonly thought among Mormons who practiced polygamy that they were practicing the higher law, and it was the greatest blessing. And this was the sometimes years to be completely fully exalted was to practice celestial marriage. And people who wouldn't practice it were released from callings and were not allowed to be in leadership positions. Yeah, and I actually agree with that assertion, too, that for a good chunk of this early church history, it was believed that celestial marriage was at some times required and other times uh, sort of set up this sort of elitist hierarchy of or caste system, if you will, of celestial eternities. And I love your analysis. It's so good because it, it reminds me that Joseph is really brilliant. I mean, by 1842, when this is happening, he's thinking a lot about this. And it's not just, I don't think you can argue that by this point, it's all about sex. I mean, Joseph is really trying to work this in uh, with a theology and the scripture. I, yeah, I, some people uh, cast Joseph Smith as, as just being only about sex. And, and others cast it as being only about setting up a, a you know this uh, restoring this concept of polygamy and in the church essay in fact portrays him as this reluctant polygamist who really doesn't want to do it and he particularly doesn't want to engage in sexual relationships but he he does it only when threatened uh, by uh, an angel with a sword and I, I actually think that both is is true I think that there was a sexual dynamic and there was desire but it was also, uh, that Joseph uh, absolutely saw this as part of a restoration and of a binding uh, this kind of a family kingdom together and this kind of complex web of sealings that families were sealed together through relationships. And, and I, I think he also he saw that uh, part of it too. So I think it's more complex than some critics or apologists might uh, suggest. Exactly. exactly. So let's go back to the Brotherton story. So uh, Joseph comes in, and then, of course, Brigham Young would say, quote, And you will never have reason to repent it. That is, if I do not turn from righteousness, and that I trust I never shall. And she concludes in her account, quote, The next day being Sunday, I sat down instead of going to meeting and wrote the conversation and gave it to my sister, end quote. And I just want to say something really quick on this. Um, you, of course, you're giving this a, us the analysis of what is said, which is, fantastic. But I also think that everyone should go read this because this is what Christy Money was talking about. It's sort of this grooming behavior. Uh, there's there's an argument with apologists if Martha Brotherton was locked in a room or not. But we do know that she goes through this sort of back and forth with these three men in authority over her. And I think that that power dynamic should be mentioned when we're talking about this story. They're They're really trying hard to convince her and she is really hesitant to accept. Yes, yeah, she is. Uh, and, and there are several others. And we normally don't hear, it, it's interesting to hear the refused proposals and uh, how they, they play out. And they're all later portrayed as, uh, apostate uh, antagonists if they, if they come forth with their story. And I, I don't know that that was really, uh, quite fair. I, I can understand why, why some of these, uh, women would, not want to accept the proposals that they were given and uh, and would come out to expose it because they felt that was the right thing to do. Uh, but, but sometimes they were castigated and their reputation was tarnished as a result. 
I do want to say, so, you know, there's this idea that Joseph was setting up dynastic ceilings, which I actually agree with. I think he was experimenting with that. But I do think that we need to point out that as far as we know, I mean, there's some scholarship coming out about the law of adoption and such. But it seemed that the way that Joseph would have understood these ceilings, or at least believed he was setting up the ceilings, depending on how you interpret it, is through sort of sexual relationships, because these were through marriages. It wasn't like Joseph was just going to seal everybody to himself. He was sealing people as his wives, which I think brings a unique component to it. So it wasn't just about being with everybody for eternity, but there's this idea of being in relationship to someone as husband and wife. Yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's one other reference to uh, a later reference to this uh, revelation with the Brotherton, uh, Brotherton account. I keep, <laughs> I, I thought her name was Brotherton, but I think it's Brotherton. And, and so if I said Brotherton in the, the earlier, I, I meant to say Brotherton. But uh, let you're me, fine. Uh, I spent an, a whole episode couldn't pronounce Mormon Reformation for some reason, <laughs> and I let it stand. It was embarrassing. Oh uh, yeah. Well. Uh, <laughs> So uh, here's a, a, a publication in the Millennial Star, and this is to, to downplay Brotherton's account, but, but they make mention of a revelation in here also. So I, I wanted to point that out because my, my purpose in all this is to establish uh, the revelations that occurred in addition to Section 132 by Joseph Smith. And in the Millennial Star... They say that uh, Brotherton, or Brotherton set up Joseph and Brigham to appear as if they had, quote, been trying to seduce her by making her believe that God had given a revelation that men might have two wives. And, and then they go on to assure the readers that, quote, no such principle of having two wives uh, ever existed among the Latter-day Saints and never will, uh, close quote. And here you also get the dynamic, not only the kind of the confirmation that there was this idea of a revelation, but uh, this kind of denial and counter-denial. And, and the publishers of the Millennial Star deny there there's any concept of plural marriage going on. But we know, of course, that was to be the, that was the case. There was a plural marriage being practiced. She denies Brigham Young. And uh, Brigham Young would later, even though she denied him, he would seal her by proxy without her consent to him in the next life. Yeah, this was after she had died. So Brigham, and, and you kind of wonder if this, because this was designated by revelation, perhaps, perhaps Brigham felt he needed to fulfill that revelation. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's pure speculation on my part. Interestingly, Martha's sister is the one who acted as a proxy uh, in the sealing uh, when when she was sealed to Brigham Young. That is interesting. Your your take is a little bit more generous. I would I would suspect that there's an element of pride in that as well. That, that, that could be. That, that certainly could be. So let's talk about Nancy Rigdon in 1842. Okay. Yeah. This is uh, on April 10th, and all these are fairly close together. Um, uh, Joseph. And this is really interesting. We have a lot of text by Joseph Smith that kind of sheds light on, I think, on Joseph Smith's mind. That Joseph proposes to Nancy Rigdon. She's the daughter of Sidney Rigdon, who's in the first presidency. And uh, now Nancy's brother-in-law, uh, George Robertson, Robinson, 
reported this account. And apparently he was a witness to some of the conversation that was occurring. And, and he says that Joseph uh, was telling Nancy, the Lord was well pleased with this matter, for he had got a revelation on the subject, and God had given him the blessings of Jacob, etc., etc., that there was no sin whatever. So Nancy refuses this proposal, and so Joseph dictates a letter um, shortly thereafter, hoping to convince uh, her to marry him. And it's important to remember that uh, what the letter was written for, which is to convince her to accept the principle of plural marriage. And, and also interesting about this letter is it's actually included in uh, the history of the church. And I hear it quoted in conference every once in a while and or in Sunday school classes. And I, I, I kind of have to smile because I'm not sure that uh, the, the people who are using this or realize the story behind it. Yeah, so, I think many Mormons would be familiar with this text. But like you said, they don't know the background. And, and I find it interesting, too, because lately I've seen a lot of these sort of quotes from Joseph meant to defend Joseph. Um, and the practice of plural marriage online, and they don't realize that the context of these quotes were actually Joseph trying to instigate plural marriage. So it's this weird, weird irony that's going on right now. It, it, exactly, exactly. It, it is rather ironic. Uh, do, do you mind, uh, do you want to read this uh, first sure. part of this letter? Yeah, he says, quote, Happiness is the object and design of our existence. We cannot keep all the commandments without first knowing them. That which is wrong under one circumstance may be, and often is, right under another. And, and so, that, I mean, that's very telling right there. Uh, stuff that looks wrong is right. And this idea of happiness uh, it will play out a little bit later. This is the principle on which the government of heaven is conducted by revelation. Whatever God requir requires is right, no matter what it is, although we may not see the reason thereof till long after the events transpire. So with Solomon, first he asked wisdom, and God gave it to him. And with every desire of his heart, even things which might be considered abominable to all who understand the order of heaven only in part, but which in reality were right because God gave and sanctioned by special revelation. Okay, so this is very this is a very interesting idea, especially of Solomon. Now, remember Solomon is mentioned in section one thirty two and is given as an example of plural marriage, and here. As Joseph is trying to convince Nancy uh, about the and convince her that plural marriage is uh, something that she should participate in, uh, Joseph gives an example of Solomon, who asks for wisdom and receives a special revelation, uh, and this special revelation grants him, quote, every desire of his heart, close quote, that other people would quote consider abominable, abominable. So I, I think it's clear that this concept of uh, plural marriage is uh, being talked about here. Uh, yeah, why, why don't you go ahead with the next uh, part of the letter? Okay. It is proper that we shall enjoy his gifts and blessings wherever, whenever and wherever he is disposed to bestow. But if we should seize upon those same blessings and enjoyments without law, without revelation, without commandment, those blessings and enjoyments would prove cursings. Okay, so... Here he tells Nancy that enjoying God's gifts and blessings and enjoyments is not sin if there's revelation to sanction it. And 
and those who receive the blessing shall, quote, have abundantly. And, and this will play out a little later when we talk about the parable of the ten talents about uh, having abundantly. So, uh, Go ahead uh, with the next part. Blessings offered but rejected are no longer blessings, but become like the talent hid in the earth. The blessing is bestowed on those who will receive and occupy. For unto him that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundantly. But unto him that hath not, or will not receive, shall be taken away that which he hath, or might have had. Okay, yeah, so, and again, we have, here's this uh, concept that is like the, uh, the, the hidden talents in the earth. A year later, in April of 1843, Joseph told Benjamin Johnson, his good friend, that he was going to preach a sermon about plural marriage. And and Joseph and Benjamin recalls that Joseph said, quote, no one but you will understand, close quote, that this is about plural marriage. So uh, on the 2nd of April, Joseph preached uh, a sermon about the parables of the Ten Talents. And uh, he, he says this, he says, What is the meaning of the scripture? He that is faithful over a few things shall be made ruler over many. And he that is faithful over many shall be made ruler over many more. Uh, that, that's Joseph's, quoting Joseph Smith. Now, Benjamin Johnson uh, noted uh, that the plural marriage aspects of this sermon. He said uh, that Joseph Smith, quote, showed plainly to him that he that hath, hath, and this is wives, shall be given more. And from him that had but one should be taken that he seemeth to have, and be given to him who hath ten. So, so this is this idea of people who embrace the principle would be given many more wives, and those who reject it may lose the, the only wife that they have. And be given to somebody else. And I want to talk about this concept for a minute because I think this is important to understand. One of the things that I struggle with with Mormon theology is this, this sort of prosperity doctrine, right? That if you're faithful, you're going to be given a lot more, which is really nice when you're struggling and trying to maintain your faith to realize that there's a prize at the end. However, I mean, it gets into this sort of uh, classist, you know, uh, sort of poor versus rich inequity. Um, and I think that that's one aspect of it that's a problem. But in the way that it's applied here and would be applied for decades and decades in the church is that women were these rewards. And so we don't see women as people claiming their own spiritual salvation. We see them dependent upon the righteous men in their life. They will be rewarded. Uh, they will be as a reward to these men. And I would argue that I think that this is why we still continue to pedestalize women in the church. Of course, that's reductive. But this idea that women are so great and so wonderful and so needed is sort of an offshoot of this idea that uh, women are so great and you will get many of them if you're righteous, if you're a righteous man. Yeah, yeah. There, there's uh, references. Uh, when I looked at the uh, Heber C. Kimball's Lawless Revelation um there, this idea that he, I, I quote, uh, I look at Heber's view of women, and, uh, and it doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy. Uh, and they're kind of uh, they're presented as jewels in the crown of of the male of of the the guy. So all the accumulated wives are jewels in his crown. And so this 
this concept is is very patriarchal and it's not like you said it's not too heartwarming uh, for women uh, that view and i'm so glad you brought up the jewels in the crown because as we move into talking more about fundamentalism we actually see this in uh i believe it's flds discourse they they use that term quite a bit that another woman will be like another jewel in the crown which is kind of a gross idea. I mean, it's it's a beautifully said metaphor, but when we realize that these are actually people that we're talking about and the crown goes on the head of a male and the women are the jewels, so it's, it's a really concerning, concerning idea. Well, in the letter, uh, the letter continues on, and what's really amazing is we actually now, without any announcement, Joseph's voice actually goes into a revelatory voice. And we have uh, a revelation right in the middle of this uh, letter. And and, uh, and and so it's very interesting to read this. So uh, do, do you want to read that uh, revelation? Um, yes. Ask and ye shall receive, seek and ye shall find. But if you will take that which is not your own, or which I have not given you, you shall be rewarded according to your deeds. But no good... Uh, let's start... Hang on, right, right there. Um, so here... The revelation warns that she uh, should refrain from those that I have not given you. And so Nancy at this time has a romantic interest in Francis Higby. And and she's basically told, you know, if you will take that which is not your own or which I have not given you, uh, and she, this may be a warning not to have a relationship with, with Francis Higby. That's heartbreaking. So, yeah, go ahead. Uh, But no good thing will I withhold from them who walk uprightly before me and do my will in all things, who will listen to my voice and to the voice of my servant whom I have sent. For I delight in those who seek diligently to know my precepts and abide the law of my kingdom. For all things shall be known unto them in mine own due time, and in the end they shall have joy. Okay, so, yeah, and so perhaps... It, at the very end, they're referring to a turmoil that they may feel um, over this you know, heart-wrenching proposition that they have. Uh, they're told that, quote, in the end, they would have joy. So that may refer to uh, this idea of they have some turmoil, but once they accept it, everything will, will be nice and, and uh, peachy king. Yeah, and uh, we see this, I I believe I've talked about this already on the podcast, but this idea, you know, this contemporary idea that, you know, if we just... If we struggle with polygamy, God will make it all work out and we'll be happy with it in the next life. And I would argue that Mormon theology does just the opposite. God is saying, if you work through the turmoil, then you'll find the happiness first. So it's not that you'll all of a sudden become okay with polygamy. You have to live it first and then you'll be rewarded. And I also want to point out with with this story, again, there will be people that will argue that Joseph did not have sexual relations with these women. But here we see... Uh, Nancy Rigdon's sexuality sort of being controlled. He's saying, you can't have the man of your heart because you're going to be sealed to me. And so regardless of if he, you know, had a sexual relationship with her, clearly her own choices were limited. And I've only quoted uh, excerpts from this letter. Uh, I, I would encourage uh, people to, to look it up on the Internet and read the whole letter. And uh, and it's, it's very interesting. You kind of get inside uh, Joseph Smith's mind as he is trying to, to, as he's rationalizing this to Nancy and trying to explain to her uh, his views and, and how he sees this. And on your blog post, you have incredible footnotes. I'm assuming that they would link to this. 
Yes, yeah, okay. there there are links. Uh, I, I've tried to link to everything, including online text where, where these can be read. It's funny because I saw Christopher C. Smith joke to you about when you write a blog post, yours comes with like three pages of footnotes or something. So your footnotes <laughs> yeah. are great. Thanks. Okay, let's move to Melissa Schindel. Okay, yeah, this is uh, a little bit later, July 2nd, 1842. And this is very brief. And this is a this is one of those that are John C. Bennett influenced. So uh, so should be taken uh, with that uh, caveat. But basically, um, uh, Melissa Schindel presents an affidavit that uh, as follows. He, he said that he, uh, Joseph, told her that it was the will of the Lord that she have illicit intercourse with her and that he never proceeded to do anything of that kind with any woman without first having the will of the Lord on the subject. Now, this is... Uh, this is about all we have about uh, the idea of a revelation. The account does go on to say that there was another woman, Catherine Warren, and Ed Sh- Joseph apparently has uh, an illicit relationship with her um, also. Now, Bennett was Bennett and uh, and I would also mention William Smith were, were known to, to to really do this, to just say, hey, if we don't get caught, it's cool with God. So let's. Let's have a relationship, and uh, and and this seems to fit more of the Bennett type approach, uh, from what I understand about that. And you can find Schindel's accounts in the Sangamo Journal. I believe that those are online, and you can view view the scannings of them. And of course, this is what we talked about with Christy Money that Melissa was a case where Joseph said, "If you don't do this, I'm going to call you a whore." And Joseph does proceed in the journal to publish that she is a whore. So we do see women that sort of went against this. Uh, their reputations were were sort of besmirched, if you will. Yes, yeah, yeah. A lot of that occurred, kind of back and forth. So tell us about Nancy Miranda Hyde. Okay, this is a uh, uh, she's the wife of Orson Hyde, and Orson Hyde is uh, on a mission. Uh, overseas mission uh, from April 1840 to 18 to December 7th 1842. So for quite a while, and and Nancy is fending for herself, and she's really in uh, in poverty, having a difficult time. So Joseph Smith receives a revelation uh, near the end of 1841, uh, calling for assistance, uh, and uh, it says, uh, "quote Inasmuch as you you have called." Upon me to know my will concerning my handmaid Nancy Marinda Hyde, behold, it is my will that she should have a better place prepared for her than that which she now lives. So, so Nancy goes to live with another family, and her circumstances are improved. Now, now the revelation continues though, and it says, "Let my handmaid Nancy Marinda Hyde hearken." To the counsel of my servant Joseph in all things, whatsoever he shall teach unto her, and it shall be a blessing upon her and upon her children after her, unto her justification, saith the Lord. So, so we have this subtle reference to following Joseph's instructions. Well, uh, in 1880, Nancy uh, went back and added some additional information. Uh, she reported that. This revelation 
had been delivered to her shortly after Joseph had taught her the doctrine of celestial marriage, and that she, quote, followed the counsel of the prophet Joseph as above instructed, and uh, and she ended up uh, marrying Orson Hyde. And so, so we have this revelation, and we have a marriage. We're not sure when she got married. We have two conflicting dates. It was either April 1842, before Orson came back, or May 1843, after he came back. Um, but but this is a, apparently a revelation uh, instructing uh, that she followed Joseph Smith in the doctrine of uh, polygamy. Yeah, and that's, uh, I've seen this referenced uh, for faithful sources, but it's it's... I, it's just interesting that all of these things are coming about with revelations on on the one hand, and then we do have other rumors of Joseph on the other hand, not knowing if there's revelations. There just seems, I mean, it's so messy to me and just in my head to think about as a more, as a church historian, an actual church historian that has to defend this, to track down all of these, these things to sort of justify the practice. Yeah, yeah, and you know Brian Brian Hales uh, is uh, is probably the chief among the, the people who are uh, defending Joseph Smith, uh, his character, uh, and that this uh, this is all from the Lord, and he he's written a massive, very well done three volume uh, work on Joseph Smith's polygamy, and he has a great website called I think it's called josephsmithspolygamy.org that has a lot of these sources in it that, that are uh, excellent. It has some very good uh, uh, reasoning in those. And, you know, some people have taken issue with some of his his analysis, but but it's a very good uh, resource. Um, uh, and, and he's probably the apologist uh, of our time uh, that is uh, coming to the defense of Joseph Smith and is quoted extensively in the church's uh, polygamy essay. Yeah, he sort of gives them a framework to work around, I think. And uh, I, I agree, we've we've linked to his site many times and given him a lot of shout-outs. My issue with his research is that he specifically privileges Joseph over, you know, this, these women and their experiences. And, and I think that's one interpretation, but you would have to go, you would have to believe that God also does that, and I just don't, I don't believe that. So uh, let's talk about Sarah Ann Whitney. Okay. Uh, Sarah Ann Whitney nee is the daughter of uh, Newell K. Whitney, and uh, I, I'm, I'm going out of my way to try to mention women's names whenever possible. Thank and, you. And I, I, I'm trying more and more to, to mention women. Yes, Sarah Ann Whitney is the daughter of Newell K. Whitney and Elizabeth Ann Whitney, and uh, she is to be married uh, to Joseph Smith. And we have a very interesting revelation to Joseph Smith giving the text of the marriage ceremony that is to be used in this uh, polygamous ceiling that is to occur. Now, there's a modified, this ceremony is used in the temple today, a modified version of it. So we still have, uh, this revelation is still being used and the ceremony is still being used in a modified form. Um, do you want to read the sure. beginning sure. of this? Yeah, it says, Verily thus saith the Lord unto my servant Newell K. Whitney, The thing that my servant Joseph Smith has made known unto you and your family, and which you have agreed upon, is right in mine eyes, and shall be crowned upon your heads, 
with honor and immortality and eternal life to all your house, both old and young, because of the lineage of my priesthood, saith the Lord, it shall be upon you and upon your children after you from generation to generation, by virtue of the holy promise which I now make unto you, saith the Lord. Okay, so Newell K. Whitney is told that uh, for receiving the concept of plural marriage, his entire family will be crowned with eternal life, and that these blessings will pass down through his lineage. Very interesting idea. Now let me, I'm going to excerpt, this is a bit lengthy, so I'm going to just read uh, little bits and pieces okay. uh, and kind of hit the meat, but uh, people are welcome to read the, the whole thing, and it is interesting to read. Um, so the Revelation continues, These are the words which you shall pronounce upon my servant, Joseph Smith, and your daughter, uh, Sarah and Whitney. They shall each take each other by the hand and say, and, and then it kind of goes on, uh, and, uh, and then it, it, it says, uh, those rights which have been given to my servant Joseph Smith by revelation and commandment and by legal authority has in times past. So here, here's this, again, recurring theme of justification uh, for polygamy based on what has occurred in the past. We have this idea of a restoration of uh, plural marriage. Can I ask a question really quick about that? When you say those rights... What do you think is the context of the context of the word rights? Does that mean marriage? Does that mean having relationships with women? What does the term rights mean? Uh, you know, that's a good question that I I don't know. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly. I don't know if it could be the uh, authority or I I, I don't know, uh, Lindsay. I, I'm not sure. Okay, thanks. So it, it goes on and says a very interesting thing in the next. This is occurring uh, by uh, that God obtained the holy Melchizedek Jethro and other of the holy fathers, etc., uh, etc. Et and, and I've puzzled about this for a long time. I ran across this uh, when I was in college uh, way back in the, uh, in, in the 80s. And I thought, what, what is the holy Melchizedek Jethro? And I was thinking about that. And, you know, Joseph Smith is portrayed as a, a Moses-type figure. And here, New K. Whitney is is going to become basically the father-in-law of uh, Joseph Smith through this marriage. And if I remember, I believe Jethro wasn't he the father-in-law of Moses? I I'm not sure, but I, I wonder if that's why the Holy Melchizedek Jethro. It, it, that's what that might refer to. If anybody has any insight on that, I would I'd love to know uh, what you thought about that. But this, anyway, this this goes on uh, uh, for for a little bit more. But it's it's a marriage ceiling, and uh, and it has again a lot of concepts similar to section one thirty two, like being crowned with eternal life, uh, marriage for time and eternity, uh, the authority of Joseph Smith, and the restoration of uh, previously uh, of previous practices. Yes, and. Uh... This is this is interesting because DNC 132 is sort of packed with all of this. And again, let's remind everyone that this was not canonized in Mormon scripture for a long time after it was given. And of course, the Community of Christ, the RLDS, did not incorporate this this revelation into their doctrine and covenants. DNC 132 is something that people ask me about all the time. And when I was on Trip Talk with Laura Hill, she said, you know, this. On the one hand, she said that this was, you know, there was a whole context about this being the 
polygamy revelation. And then she said, it's not really a polygamy revelation. It's an eternal family revelation. But there's all of these ideas sort of going on in this revelation here. Absolutely. Yes. Let's talk about, this is a hard one, a hard story for me to tell. Uh, the Emma Smith to partake not. Well, can you tell us this story? Because I don't think we've covered this story on the podcast. Yeah, this is actually, we're now up to section one, 132. There, there's a particularly interesting uh, set of verses, I think from about 50 through 56, that are really quite curious and are hard to understand, I think, unless you, unless we uh, look at some of the historical record of what's going on. And so I'm going to try to do that, bring out some other items that are going on at that time that hopefully will bring these verses to light. But Emma is told that she, quote, partake not of that which I command you to offer her. And I to my servant Joseph and no one else. At that time, uh, uh, William Clayton, a few weeks earlier, William Clayton's journal is really fun to read. He was very good friends with Joseph Smith, and they confided in each other. And, and William kept some very interesting notes about uh, that give us some illumination on plural marriage. And on June 23rd, he said that Joseph had confided, confided some, quote, delicate matters, close quote, to William Clayton. And, who, and he writes about a snare that Emma wanted to set up for Joseph Smith as a matter of revenge. So, and speaking of Joseph, this is Clayton, uh, who's speaking of Joseph, Emma said, quote, she thought that if he would indulge himself, she would too, close quote. So, so this is from Clayton's diary. And now it sort of will. means that if he indulges in extramarital relationships, she would as well, right? That's what we're to infer from that. That's, that's kind of what uh, I would... Uh, infer from that, yes. And then uh, now we have Joseph Jackson uh, at the time. He reported that Joseph Smith had told him, quote, Emma wanted William Law, and William Law is the first counselor. So Emma wanted Law for a spiritual husband, and she urged as a reason that as he had so many spiritual wives, she thought it but fair that she should have at least one man spiritually sealed to her. So here we have this idea that uh, Emma is like, man, Joseph's got all these wives. Uh, I should at least have one guy sealed to me. And this is this is Joseph Jackson. Now, he is uh, antagonistic to Joseph Smith. However, this account does fit the context with other accounts. Um, so I, I think it needs to be taken uh, seriously. Same revelation that is referred to in NC 51, where Emma had been commanded earlier not to take, that she's not to take of that which God said was okay to, to take. Uh, Jackson said uh, about Joseph Smith, that Joseph Smith, quote, got up a revelation that law was to be sealed up to Emma, and that law's wife, Jane, was to be his, that is also. So, so again, law, uh, Joseph Jackson is basically setting up this context where Emma could be sealed um, to William Law and that Jane Law was to be sealed to Joseph Smith. This is all kind of confusing, but it's kind of like a uh, wife swap. And in fact, that's what Joseph Jackson calls it. He, he missed swap, but Jackson said that they were to, quote, swap wives. Now, uh, William Law 
uh, later uh, provides clarification. He said it was not a swap. Uh, he said that, quote, Joseph offered to furnish his wife, Emma, with a substitute for him by way of compensation for his neglect of her on condition that she would forever stop her opposition to polygamy. So we have this idea that uh, it wasn't really a, a wife swap, but it was more of uh, Emma being given a husband if she would stop her opposition to, to Joseph Smith's marrying all these other women. And it would kind of fill in the place of being neglected, right? So he would be sort of this proxy husband because Joseph was busy being with all these other women. And this is sort yes, of her consolation exactly. prize. Yeah, it's so interesting and sort of messed up on a m many different interesting levels. Yes, yeah, it, it, it is very interesting. Uh, so, so let me reread these verses in section 132. Now that we've given kind of a historical context, uh, uh, let me reread this, and, I, and then I think it makes a little more sense once, uh, once we have this context. Uh, a commandment I give unto my handmaid, Emma Smith, your wife, whom I have given unto you, that she stay herself and partake not of that which I commanded you to offer her. For I did it, saith the Lord, to prove you as I did Abraham, and that I may require an offering by your hand, by covenant and sacrifice. And then it goes on, I command mine handmaid, Emma Smith, to abide and cleave unto my servant Joseph and to none else. So here it's kind of couched that apparently the an earlier revelation to Joseph Smith from God that saying it's okay for you to marry William Law. Now the Lord is saying that was really a test, uh, kind of an Abrahamic type test, and to see if and it, it's an offering that Emma was to offer, uh, kind of a sacrifice, and and so it's kind of reversed the early revelation in this context. And I believe I read a source, and I can't remember where I read this, so take this with a grain of salt. But there was something along the lines of Joseph sort of recants because he gets upset and jealous and changes his mind. Yeah, yeah. In, in the earlier reference to in William Clayton's diary, you know, kind of gives a sense of that that there's, uh, I mean, there's definitely some angst going on. The delicate matter uh, where Emma's laying a snare and so forth uh, kind of gives a sense of that. So tell us about what happens to William and Jane Law. Of course, William Law would go on to publish the Nauvoo Expositor, which gets destroyed and sets in motion a lot of important events. But tell us what happens to William and Jane Law here. Yeah, so the dating this is, is difficult. This is another episode with uh, William and Jane Law. And all we know is that this occurred sometime before May uh, 24th, 1844. Now, what's interesting here is uh, we often... This is from the journal of uh, Alexander Nybar, and we often see this. Uh, uh, he, Joseph had just got through telling him the story of the first vision, and so it's one of the few stories of the first vision that we have. And so you often hear this quoted. Uh, what we don't see, though, is the rest of the journal entry. After Joseph told him about the first vision, he goes on and, uh, and quote told about Mr. William Law, wished to be married to his wife, Jane, for eternity. Mr. Smith, Joseph Smith, said that he would inquire of the Lord about this marriage. And 
The answer uh, was no. Uh, and the reason was uh, given because Law was an adulterous person. Now, just a few days earlier, William Law uh, had uh, published uh, that Joseph Smith was guilty of adultery. Now we have Joseph, the Lord uh, saying this sealing uh, can't occur because William Law was an adulterous person. It's almost a one for one for one on this. So later, when uh, William was not at home, Joseph reported that uh, Jane had invited him in. This is again from uh, Alexander Nybar's journal. She, drawing her arms around him, Joseph, said, quote, If you won't seal me to my husband, seal myself to you, close quote. And he says, quote, Stand away. And pushing her gently aside, uh, giving her a denial, and going out. When Mr. Law came home, he inquired who had been in his absence. She said, No one but Brother Joseph. He then demanded what had passed. Mrs. Law then told Joseph uh, wanted to be married to him. So, so again, this is a very interesting uh, uh, entry in Alexander Nybar's uh, journal. Relationship between uh, Emma and William and Jane are, are really complex. And it's, it's not clear if Jane is requesting to be sealed to Joseph or if Jane's statement that Joseph wanted to marry her were part of the revelation uh, that prevented Jane and William from being sealed. Very, very curious. And I'm not quite sure how to interpret all of this, but it shows you this dynamic of uh, this kind of a four-way relationship between Joseph and Jane and uh, William and Emma going on. And, And this is a second episode of that that we have. And of course, it doesn't end well, right? Their relationship would not, uh, William Law and Joseph Smith would not be a happy one. Of course, William Law thinks Joseph is going to poison him and, and, uh, they, they sort of end as bitter enemies. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, William Law goes on to publish the novel Expositor, as you mentioned earlier. And, and of course, things go really bad for Joseph. Uh, he ends up dead, uh, over this. And so this is the beginnings of that, uh, that thing that ends very badly uh, for everyone involved. It just, just does not end well. And this is my issue with the essay. They say, you know, it's impossible to reconstruct Emma's thoughts on this practice. But I, I think impossible is a really strong word because we have, I mean, we have these documents telling these stories and clearly Emma is like you said, angst is a good word. I can't, I imagine the angst with Emma would have been so thick you could have cut it with a, with a knife because it's, you can see the, the struggle and the conflict and the anger and the rage she must have been feeling over this. At least that's my interpretation of it. Absolutely. They're, they're, they're right. There's no firsthand accounts from Emma. There's a, there's a lot of secondhand accounts. And, and then there's a lot of inferences, uh, that, that, uh, can be had. And the one thing that comes to mind is the time that, uh, Joseph gets violently ill, his stomach, uh, and he accuses Emma of poisoning him. And, uh, Emma probably didn't poison him, but, uh, but the fact that she would assume that, uh, or that he would assume that kind of gives you a sense of the tension that is going on in the relationship. And of course, poison, we are learning with scholarship, was 
kind of a common thing in Nauvoo. It was sort of floating around at the time. So uh, let's talk about uh, September 15th, 1843. Okay, so yeah, so now we've moved past Section 132, and, and this is actually after the fact. And the very last verse in Section 132 says, quote, I will reveal more unto you hereafter. So we have the promise of more revelation on uh, the topic of plural marriage. And lo and behold, uh, we have exactly that. Um, this is two months later, and uh, Joseph receives a revelation about, uh, it's about marital harmony in polygamous relationships. And uh, and maybe kind of uh, in a funny way about uh, if you get too many sisters together in a household, uh, you can have some uh, <laughs> some fireworks. Uh, at least that's what's inferred here. So um, William Clayton uh, was married to his first wife. He'd also married two sisters, and he wanted to marry a third sister, Lydia Moon. And he asked Joseph Smith about it. And here's what uh, William Clayton records in his journal. President Joseph Smith told me he had lately a new item of law revealed to him in relationship to myself. He said, the Lord has revealed to him that a man could take only two of a family except by express revelation. And as I have said, I intended to take Lydia. He made it known for my benefit. To have more than two in a family was apt to cause wrangles and trouble. He finally asked, and then, so, so here's, here's the first part of this diary entry where uh, basically it's saying if you get more than three sisters married to, to one guy that there's going to be wrangles and troubles and that it requires a special revelation to, for an exception to this rule. And then, uh, the, the diary entry goes on after they, they've, kind of established that William can't uh, marry this third woman, uh, William says, he finally asked if I would not give Lydia to him, to Joseph. And I said, uh, I, I would so far as I had anything to do with it. And he requested me to talk to her. So, so we have uh, Joseph now, uh, now that this uh, woman is freed up by revelation, Joseph wants to to marry her and, and ask William's help in uh, trying to, to procure that uh, arrangement. Yeah, I remember when I first stumbled upon this story, the way that I read it was perhaps uncharitable, but I, I'm going to stand by this. To me, it seems that at this point, Joseph, how, how I read this was William Clayton wants to take Lydia Moon on, Joseph wants her too, and so because Joseph is a prophet, he holds the prophet card. He says, nope, I just had a revelation and it doesn't work that way. It just seems a little bit too convenient, and I know that there are more charitable readings, but I I mean, it just seems to me that if you're the prophet, you would have that power to say, oh, 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 but there's a revelation now for that that's going to prohibit you from doing this. Sure, yeah, and there's there's a number of ways to interpret this, uh, and that uh, and that certainly seems that's certainly one way to to look at it, uh, and and others would look at it differently. It absolutely is an interesting story, and it's a very interesting uh, dynamic that's going on with how these marriages are unfolding. So, tell us what does this all mean? If you were to wrap up all these revelations, and I, and I love your analysis, and the context is so so important to understanding all of this. 
Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to think about. Uh, you know, my goal was, of course, to document the revelations that had occurred in addition to, to uh, the one in 1831. And the one in 1831, as I pointed out earlier, I, I think we need to be very cautious to call that a plural marriage revelation. Uh, it, it, it may be, but it, it, it looks a little bit iffy. And uh, I suspect that instead... Uh, as Joseph uh, is thinking more and more about plural marriage, at some point he certainly does have an initial revelation about plural marriage. And and then he begins to have, uh, apparently, with I think with every person he proposes to, I think he's had a revelation to do that. That's my reading, and, and there is some documentation to back that up. And I think his ideas and his understanding of what all this means evolves as he continues to have these revelations. And it's kind of a line upon line, precept on precept idea of this evolving doctrinal ideology of what plural marriage is and what it means. That's kind of my initial look at that. Well, Claire, I, I have just appreciated this so much. I think this is exactly what we needed to bring on here to give more context here. I appreciate your work so much, and I'm going to link to this. And again, I would encourage everyone to check this out. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about this? No, I think uh, I think that's pretty much wraps it up. Uh, it, just a fascinating thing, I guess, is, is what I can say. And, and, you know, I know a lot of people are really wrestling with uh, with the idea of uh, plural marriage, and, and uh, some people have been maybe a little bit uh, upset that they haven't learned about this in Sunday school. Uh, I can certainly understand why the church has uh, avoided uh, this topic. Uh, it, it's it's a tough topic, and uh, it's kind of hard to to uh, make sense of, and uh, in a faithful context, uh, I suppose. But I think the church uh, should be applauded that they have come forth with this. They're now moving to a stance of being open about this, and I think that'll be helpful for future generations of people growing up and learning about this. That it'll be a little easier to assimilate than those who hear about this for the first time. It's kind of a lot to, to take on all at once. So I, I think it's a good step that the church is, uh, is going ahead with this, these revelate or these uh, essays about polygamy. I hope that we can convince you to come back to talk about Woodruff's revelations. I would love for you to do that. That'd be a lot of fun. I'd, oh. I'd enjoy that. Yeah, let's plan on it. So, uh, you can be reached online. You can, they can find your website. And again, I just so appreciate you and your work and appreciate everyone who is listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.